thought I would, uh, after the children's sermon, I'd do a little bit of an audible here. It seemed appropriate to read this poem. It's one of my favorites, uh, a Welsh poet, a uh, pastor, I believe, uh, named R.S. Thomas. It's called The Bright Field. I've seen the sun break through to illuminate a small field for a while and gone my way and forgotten it. That was the pearl of great price, the one field that had treasure in it. I realize now that I, might have, I must give all that I have to possess it. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future or hankering after an imagined past. It is turning aside like Moses to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seemed as transitory as your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. The miracle of the lit bush. It's kind of cool. Um, As I get situated here, uh, let me take a moment and pray. Going here, Father, thank you for this time, uh, the opportunity to uh, look at the lit bush as as Moses saw this unusual phenomenon happening uh, far off, and then went to investigate. May we have that same kind of response to you. Be with us this morning, guide us by your word, and be with our friends uh, and close friends and. Who, and even the friends and brothers and sisters that we don't know far off, be with them, meet their needs, uh, heal as you can heal, uh, provide as you can provide. We trust you, we love you. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, I thought I would start uh, with reading uh, stanzas from a poem that I think is appropriate for the series and for this sermon. Uh, from William's, William Wordsworth, it just stands as a part of a poem. Uh, the poem is uh, titled this. You ready? Lines left upon a seat in a yew tree which stands near the lake of Esthwaite on a desolate part of the shore, yet commanding a beautiful prospect. <laughs> that is the title. Yeah. Say that five times fast. That's right, David. Okay, so here's the stanzas. If thou be one whose heart the holy forms of young imagination have kept pure, stranger, henceforth be warned, and know that pride, however disguised in its own majesty, is littleness, that he who feels contempt for any living thing hath faculties which he has never used, that thought with him is in its infancy, The man whose eye is ever on himself doth look on one, the least of nature's works, one who might move the wise man to that scorn which wisdom holds unlawful ever. O be wiser thou, instructed that true knowledge leads to love, true dignity abides with him alone, who in the silent hour of inward thought can still suspect and still revere himself in loneliness of heart. So I'd like to as I ever try and do, claim uh, the promise of Jesus in Acts 1.8 where he says, we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we will be his witnesses. And that is true even in this moment as we meet uh, with, for Sabbath worship. I do want to uh, 
set forth a um, kind of a little bit of a warning of the content. Uh, it's going to uh, be of, of a slightly sexual nature. You're not the only one, Brett. All right. <laughs> so I'll get to that. Around 2002, when I was living in New York City, working in ministry on the campuses in that city, that great city, I love that city, there was a day that the staff of the of crew, or Campus Crusade for Christ, were invited for a day-long seminar uh, for a special guest lecturer. Uh, this was my first encounter with Cy Rogers and his ministry. I had no idea the profound impact Cy would have on my life, and eventually the life of my marriage. That day in New York City, I heard Sai's testimony of how God made himself evident to him, even in the midst of a, a very unusual path. For you see, Sai encountered God six months out from a sex change operation. That was not the only thing I heard that day, along with the other crew staff in New York City. Sai touched not only on the issues of sexuality, but also on culture, cinema, and walking with God in the most difficult roads. After that first day-long seminar, my friendship, as well as... The friendship with others on my staff team grew with Cy at each subsequent visit that he came to New York. We even had Cy do seminars during our art summer projects we did in New York City. That's where our friends Stephen Cross, Carly Highland, Cameron Bunce, Brandy Fox, and even Sarah heard him speak. After I married Sarah and moved to Central Florida, I was pleasantly surprised to find out Cy and his wife Karen lived in Central Florida. And from that moment on, we got together often for meals and to hang out. We talked a lot about the apocalypse, as he liked to call it. The dynamic speaker I came to befriend in New York City became an even deeper friend for, to both Sarah and I. Even after we moved up here, we had occasion to drive down to just outside Atlanta to see both he and Karen a few, day, few times as he was a guest speaker at a church there. Sadly, Cy died a few years ago of cancer, too soon for both Sarah and I and his family. But we are grateful we got to see him one last time in Orlando on a visit down there. You can find out more information about Cy, S.Y. Rogers, if you do search for him on, on the interwebs. I share this story with you because of one of the main things that I learned from Cy on how to engage with any person who shows even a modicum of interest in God or God -like, godly things. Side taught me that it is important that we in the church, those transformed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, speak plainly about even the most uncomfortable topics. Not excessively, but plainly. When you, your testimony is like size and your encounter with God occurs deep in the homosexual and transsexual community, then there's a need to talk about such things without fear of appearing inappropriate or transgressing some sort of unknown rule from the Bible. As Sai would say, it's not about being ex-gay or straight or gay or trans, but it is about God. He would also tell Sarah and, if, and I that the world talks about these things. If, if the world talks about these things, then we need to as well in the church. News this week shows the blistering need for this when a new summer camp in Kentucky was reported. The content of the camp? Sex. The camp was being called Sexy Summer Camp for All Ages, which I assume 18 and under are welcome as well. So out of rural Kentucky, if such content is shown to be needed, then that should tell us in the church that we too need to have honest and plain conversations about such things. If after reading this passage in Proverbs 7 and previous chapters and hearing the teaching from them, we should say goodbye 
to the stereotype of the Bible being old, staid, and prudish, an old, staid, and prudish document. That isn't applicable today. It is real and at times raw that the creator of the universe intentionally gave us because he wanted us to know what he is saying about our existence. So let's jump in and see what we can. If you look at the written literary structure of this chapter, 7, you see that it basically has three sections. The three sections are verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 23, and then verses 24 through 27. In verses 1 through 5, the two present characters are the father and the son, or a teacher and a student, and the father's instructions to that son. In verses 6 through 23, the scene changes from the father and son to the father recounting something he observed from, it seems like almost like a high position, and he observed an interaction between someone called the adulteress and a foolish young man. This description is almost like God looking down and into an illicit interaction. Then in verses 24 through 27, it changes back to the intimate father and son scene, only it is not only one son, but plural, sons. So uh, the, from intimate father and son scene to God observing someone scene, to back to intimate father with sons or teachers with students, teacher with students. It is out of these three sections that I want to highlight some observations. In the first section... Uh, we can see the importance of the important. In the second section, we see both the sexual and non-sexual aspects of this passage. And in the last section, we see the path of darkness. You may notice from these first five verses that there is something familiar here. Because there is something familiar about these first verses. Just look at chapter 6, 20 through 23. Look at chapter 5, 1 and 2, chapter 4, 20 through 23, chapter 4, 10 through 11, chapter 4, 1 through 2, chapter 3, 1 through 3, chapter 2, 1 through 5, and then chapter 1, 8 and 9. In all these sections, a son is being addressed by his father or an elder or a teacher of some sort on all those sections. At the same time, there are admonishments to be attentive to wisdom. Get wisdom, use wisdom, guard with wisdom. Though there is repetition here in chapter 7, there are variations to the same idea. Wisdom is of utmost importance. Example uh, here in verse 1 and 2 where it says, Keep my words, keep my commandments. And this is repeated in similar manner. Look at verse uh, 20 of chapter 6. It says, Keep your father's commandments. Verse five, or, or chapter 5, verse 7. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Chapter 5, verse 1. Be attentive to my wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. 4.21. Keep them within your heart. Chapter 4.10. Accept my words. And then verse 5 of uh, chapter 4. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. 4.1. Be attentive that you may gain insight. 3.1. Do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. 2.1. Receive my words and treasure uh, and treasure them up, my commandments, with you. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Hear your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. I mean, this repetition verges on the annoying 
this idea repeated so many times. But this repetition of the importance of wisdom, instruction, teaching, or commandment is not only clear in, in the exhortation. There are tangible give, uh, examples given that are utilized to reinforce this repetition. In this chapter, in verse 3, it says, Bind wisdom, bind them on your fingertips, on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In chapter 6.21, it says, Bind them to your heart. Tie them around your neck. In 4.21, it says, Let these words not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart. 4.13 says, Keep hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Guard her. It's a personification, as we've seen before. For she is your life. 3.1 repeats, Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. And that, yet again in nine, it says, For they are a graceful garland for your head and a pendant for your neck. So in the course of, cha- of seven chapters, we have at least 17 places where not only is a clear statement of admonishment made about not forgetting wisdom or receiving and least listening to the wisdom of God, but there are also visual analogies Tying, binding, holding uh, such wisdom to yourself. Again, it seems utterly annoying, and it could be annoying. I remember uh, back in the 80s when I was in high school, there was a popular um, cop TV show that came out called Hill Street Blues that I'd watch. There was a particular character who became popular uh, called Belker. He was played by actor Bruce Weitz. He was a tough undercover cop who would even do things like get up and dressed up in uh, chicken suits for fast food restaurants to get his perp. Anyway, he was a tough undercover cop who would growl at his perps if they were doing anything he didn't like. And it was inevitable in the course of the show that Belker would bring the same perp he had caught doing the same crime, sit him down in the same chair next to his desk to write out his report. And when that happened, his phone would ring. And Belker uh, mindlessly would pick it up and go, Belker, there would be a pause, and he would say, hi, Ma. (laughs) Same guy is the same perp every time. His mom would call over and over again. From there, his interaction with his mother, us only seeing his side of the conversation, would be both uncomfortable, funny, and endearing. It happened every time this perp came in. You could say you could see that Belker was Ill, might have been slightly annoyed with his mother calling because it happened every time. You could say that she was repetitious, much like the instructor in Proverbs seven. We could see this repetition in the seven chapters as annoying, but I think the re- repetition here is for another reason. Let me give you three examples to show what I'm referring to. The first example: if I were to ask a question of any of the parents in here or listening, that are raising toddlers uh, ages one through five-year-old, and that question was to them, have any of you only had to use the word no with your child once? (laughs) How many of those parents would answer yes to that question? Sure, I've used no on my boy just once and never had to use it ever again. (laughs) Second example. In the biblical study... In biblical study, there's a general rule about the importance of a subject addressed in the Bible that has to do with quantity. The more something is mentioned in a passage, a book, or the Bible, the greater importance is generally given to that subject. 
A third example is one of the ideas put forth as to how the gospel accounts were written by the four writers is that it was, they were written down, was not necess- what was written down was not necessarily said once and then never taught again by Jesus. In fact, it is possible that the reason we have the Sermon on the Mount is because D- Jesus didn't give the speech that one time, that he probably taught these same subjects over and over again. And that assisted the gospel writers in being able to write it down with accuracy. Did Jesus give a Sermon on the Mount like it has recounted in Matthew? Most likely. But that probably wasn't the only time Jesus talked about the blesseds, or lust, or money. I hope you get the point. Perhaps the reason the writer of Proverbs has repeated to the verge of annoyance this idea of holding wisdom, binding it, wearing it, etc., is because he is showing, God is showing, how important he wants us to treat wisdom. No is an important word for parents raising a toddler. (laughs) Love is talked about more than speaking in tongues. No offense over there to my uh, brothers and sisters. But I do want to say this about that aside. I don't want you to hear that and then think inadvertently... I'm communicating that some parts of the Bible are more important than others. That's not what I'm saying. All of the words and ideas in this book are from God, so they carry all carry that importance. God just talks about certain subjects more than others. And by that, we'll let God guide us as to what is and is not important. In verses 6 through 23, we have our second section. We have an outside observer recounting a drama below him of the foolishness of a young man and the seductively powerful tactics of an adulteress. And to be fair, this could be as easily be an adulterer as much as an adulteress. I don't want to leave the dudes out. In these verses, I want you to observe the sexual ideas being communicated and also the non-sexual In the weeks that we have been going through Proverbs, it has not been hard to see that sexual activity is used rather consistently here in Proverbs. And much of the teaching of that content has fallen to Brett. I had nothing to do with the lottery of that. The straws fell to him. Last week, he got a little respite, and that passage fell to Buzzy, so he's getting some rest. Anyway, Brett has done a great job in teaching about this stuff, and I would encourage you all to return back to their sermons and listen to them again and hear what he has to say. I have nothing to add to that, though since, though since miraculously a passage of sexual or descriptive nature has fallen to me, it seems only appropriate that I also add a few meager words. So let me comment on the sexual aspect of this passage. Even a quick reading of this passage, you can see and, and you can conclude several things about sexual activity. First, there is a correct, healthy, and flourishing sex, and then there is an improper, sickly, or destructive sex. Second, it appears from just this passage that the boundary of correct and healthy sex is within a marriage commitment or covenant, one man and one woman. How can I say that? Look at the way the woman is referred to in this chapter. In verse 5, she is called a forbidden woman and an adulteress. In verse 10, she is called a prostitute. These are all terms that reference being outside what is right and good. To be tagged forbidden means that there is something allowed by women. 
for women and men. To be tagged a prostitute means you have sex with multiple partners, and that word being used this way means that outside the bound, that's outside the bounds of what is right and true. Also, look at the way the woman in, refers to herself in her own life in verse 19. She admits her transgression, and she, she says, for my husband is not home. And she goes on to entice the young fool by saying, let's go have sex while he's gone. It'll be okay. So if she is labeled with these words and she is doing activity that her husband doesn't, would not like, it seems to communicate that there would be activity that could, she could do that he would like or would be within and that there are labels that reflect this activity outside the bounds of marriage of a man and woman, forbidden, adulterous prostitute. Since this sexual activity being referenced here in chapter 7 is outside of marriage between a married man or a woman, it seems that the boundary of healthy and right sex is marriage between a man and a woman. This is not the only passage that would make this claim. Paul talks about it in the letter to the Corinthians. Peter references it to, um, talks about it in his letters. A few more comments on this. First, I am not naive, and I, I definitely know that neither is God. That I'm not talking about the other forms of sexual activity that there are in this world. And we all know there are a lot of them from the weird things like marrying ghosts to the truly wicked thing like sex with a child. There are other forms of sexual activity. I'm commenting on what the healthy and right one is. So I want to say in the spirit of my friend Sai. It is not about being straight or ex-gay. And I would add, it's not about same-sex marriage or trans. It's not about that. It is about God. What does God say about what is healthy sex? I think a thorough reading of Scripture makes that clear, as is written here in Proverbs 7, that the right boundary for sex, and I would add the healthiest boundary, is marriage between a man and a woman. Let me uh, make my point by offering a question. What if sex only happened in this world between a man and woman inside marriage and only there? Let's just suppose that happened. What would happen to the levels of, the sex, of sexually transmitted diseases in this world? If we confined that activity to that somehow, miraculously, it's not going to happen. But what would happen to STDs? they'd start going away, wouldn't they? Second comment. To my single friends of all ages, I say this to you as someone who is happily married but was single for 39 years of his life. This year I will have been married for only a third of as long as I was single. What do you do when you are single and sex is only for marriage? First, remain celibate. That's easy to say. I know easy to say. Save that treasure for a day that you might be married. It is a valuable treasure, perhaps like the bright field in some ways, as R.S. Thomas said, that our current culture actually thinks this is childish and insane. They think being celibate or a virgin, you're a child. You are immature, and they think you're nuts. It's natural. It is neither of those things. It is unique and it is godly. 
I did it. It wasn't easy. (laughs) Second, encourage others to remain true to God, single folk, and to be true to the one he may have in store for them. Third, learn from and encourage current marriages. I learned a lot when I was single from my brother and his wife. I really did, and I'm grateful for that. I learned a lot about marriage. Get close to married people. Let some couples be your best friends. Fourth, revel in the reality that your husband, if you're a woman or wife, if you're a man, uh, live in that reality of husband and wife. There is a spiritual dimension to intimacy that is not sexual, that can only happen as a single. Revel in it. God, for a man, would be like a wife. As woman, as for a woman, be like a husband. God can act in that manner. I'll talk more about this in my next point. But for now, know that if you are single and celibate, this is not weird, or unhealthy, or immature. God says it is right, true, and the heart of a right relationship with another human being, as much as it is in a right relationship with Him. Last point, single people. Jesus was single and celibate. Boom. He knows. He knows, young people. I'm looking at the Sartain boys. He was 30, single and celibate. Non-sexual aspects of Proverbs 7. It isn't only about physical sex. It is also about spiritual intimacy with God. This is made evident over and over again in the Bible. I'll start in the Old Testament. The first use in the ESV version of the Bible of the word whore, use the word whore, is found in Exodus. And it references what God's saying people of other nations do with their gods. They whore after gods. It's really wild. It's like God saying, yeah, they whore after other gods. This image is used over and over again as a warning to the Israelites not to do the same, to whore after foreign gods of other nations. In Judges 2.17, it has a great summary statement exampling this idea. It reads this. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. This idea is also found in the words of God on the, uh, to the Israelites. Whenever they began to be disobedient, God would raise up a private prophet to essentially say they were whoring after other gods. Example here is Isaiah 1. God gives a message about the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem in chapter 1. When he gets to the part about Jerusalem, he says this. How the faithful city Jerusalem has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. What happens when you're whoring after these things? You lose justice. You become murderers. Your silver becomes worthless. 
your wine becomes diluted. Your leaders become companions, the thieves and rebels. You take bribes and gifts and you don't look after the fatherless and the widow. A very clear example of God's message to Israel through a prophet is Hosea and Gomer. This was a physical example of what God was trying to do with Israel. God gets right down to it with Hosea in chapter 1, verse 2, it reads this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Gosh, he repeats that word three times. I mean, that's weighty. He basically goes, go take a wife who is a prostitute. So Hosea does it. He plays the part of redeemer for Gomer. Spoiler alert. Gomer represents Israel. (laughs) Hosea is God. God goes to get Israel to marry her, even though she's a prostitute. You could switch this the other way. Male to female. There were male prostitutes in that day. And so Hosea stays married to Gomer, even while Gomer continues to be unfaithful. This relationship is a reflection of God's relationship with Israel. In the New Testament, I think this idea of the non-sexual dimension of our relationship with God is found most poignantly in the image of Jesus as the bridegroom and his church, us, as the bride. John the Baptist talks of this in the Gospel of John when he says of the Messiah Jesus, the one who has the bride, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, he and John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John was speaking of his excitement that Jesus, the cosmic groom, had started the process of redeeming his bride, Israel, and the church. And that John was there to see the initiation of it. That's what he says. The friend of the bridegroom. That was John the Baptist. I rejoice at him coming. The denouement of this image is found in a great passage in Revelation. The book of Revelation. says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made himself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. As my friend Mako Fujimura would say, Jesus wants to marry us. So why is this language used in this way? Does God have sex on the brain, so much so that it sort of comes out in cosmic Freudian slips that happen in the Bible when he references whoredom three times in several verses and prostitution and adultery and other such things spill out. Like, is God, like, obsessed with sex? An emphatic no. I don't think God wants to have physical or even some sort of unusual cosmic spiritual sex with us because he is our groom. However, I do think he wants us to be as intimate in a relationship with him as a husband and wife. Let me explain. 
Sarah is my most intimate confidant. She is my closest friend. Sorry. She knows me to such a degree that when we are physically naked in front of each other, we are not uncomfortable as Adam and Eve were before the fall. The idea of being naked in front of one another is a physical expression of a deeper reality. As my pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, would say, that... um, In that moment, we are saying, I have nothing to hide from you. I want to hide nothing from you. That is the relationship God wants with us. And I said it, and as I said it, it is what he had with us before the fall. Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed in that, even before God. So, how is your relationship with God going? Is it becoming more intimate? Is it merely based on a set of rules he doles out like a coach or boss or manager? Or is it more like a friendship of a close friend or a confidant? I've been walking with God since I was seven Anyway, so not always consistently, but I can tell you with confidence, God is not a rule for me. He is the greatest. He is not the greatest apologetic argument for me. He is not a drug I give myself to make me feel better. He is my friend, my rabbi, my Lord, my king. He is he is a being I don't completely understand, but that I utterly trust. Even when I doubt. That's intimacy. And it grows every day, week, and year. I wonder if you have the same. Let me invite you to turn the argument into a relationship. He's your friend. In the first five verses, you have a warm and sobering plea from a father to his son about remembering wisdom. To make it the apple of their eye, bind it to the fingers and write it on the heart. Then after this dramatic adulterous play that occurs, uh, their last four verses fall even more soberly in content. It says this, And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray from her into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way of Sheol going down to the chambers of death. How do you explain this one? As I've said from this lectern before, we love comfort in our country. We hate uncomfortable subjects. We love freedom and we despise consequences. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it now. <laughs> Damn the consequences. That's, you know, that's the kind of culture that we live in. But here there clearly are consequences. And they aren't singing birds and bright-scented flower consequences. These are dystopian, 
post-apocalyptic kind of consequences. The adulteress's woman on this path, it says, has laid many victims low, slain a mighty throng. When I read that, I had this image of the wide shots of the army fights in the Lord of the Rings, this mighty throng of huge amounts of people. It's a lot of people. But in verse 2, it gets really dark and scary. The word Sheol is literally hell, the place of the dead. The consequence of a young fool going down the path with the adulteress is complete separation from God. I just don't think hell is a place. I also think it is a relationship. Think about it. If we were all created to be in an eternal relationship with God, be with God forever, that being the highest place and meaning, that would be heaven. Then what would an eternal relationship with God, without God be called? Hell. C.S. Lewis once wrote in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those, who, uh, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without the self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Lewis would say hell is locked from the inside. God doesn't lock it from the outside. God wants a relationship, but their people, people have choice. So they lock it from the inside. It's an interesting idea. I think it rings true. The phrase in verse 27 that says, going down to the chambers of death means that there is no deeper place to go. That is the deepest of the deepest places one can go. It's like it could be translated the parlor of death, the room of death. This is the path of darkness. No, it won't necessarily happen here and now in our lifetime to all who follow such a path. In fact, if the Psalms are any indicator, there are some who walk the path and seem to flourish. Psalm 94 says this, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words, all evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder, murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. There will be things that look like there is no justice. There will be things that will look like. There are things now that look like that. But that is a season, a passing shadow. Verse 23 of Psalm 94 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous and the upright of heart will follow it. But now think about this. This path of darkness is not without hope. There is light available along this path. Now imagine now this chapter of Proverbs 7 is now God talking to us. Imagine it that way. In the first five verses, God admonishes us and pleads with us to keep wisdom in our hearts. So we, we are the ones receiving this. God is saying, son, daughter, keep it, bind it, put it on your fingertips, bind it to your, write it on the tablet of your heart. And then in verse 6 and 23, he shares this example that he has seen from on high. Young fool stupidly and carelessly is drawn in by the adulteress. He goes down the path of darkness. Then something different happens as we enter verse 23 through 27. God leaves his window, his high place from which he was observing, and he willingly gives himself to the adulteress, stepping in front of the young fool. 
And God takes the path of darkness all the way to Sheol. He goes down to the chamber, uh, chambers of death willingly. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, born, uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. What's the next phrase? He descended into hell. Jesus went into the chambers of death willingly for the young fool, or should I say, all of us young fools. But what's the next phrase of the Apostles' Creed? On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Hallelujah. Proverbs 7 is not just about God teaching us about wisdom. It's not just about his way of getting us on the right path to him, though those who are present. It is about him. As I would say, it is about him preceding us and taking us to the right path, the resurrected path. This is why we should be unafraid to face anything brought to us on this earth. It is why we should be unafraid to talk about the really uncomfortable issues of our world and face them, even the darkest ones. Jesus already went to the darkest place for us in order for us to be able to live as light in this dark world. He is the one who is the lowliest of heart that Wordsworth wrote about in his poem, because he is the one who was of pure imagination. Do you know him? He wants you to know this way, his way. He wants you to know him. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for revealing your word to us. Not just revealing it, you actually lived it. You actually fulfilled it for us because you knew we would be incapable of doing that. Help us not just to cling to the wisdom that you extol here, just by your spirit, supernaturally infuse our hearts and souls so that we can reflect uh, the same humble rabbi who came and gave his life for others. And may we do that here. May we do that now. And not just this week. And beyond. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.